if I take a bearing from the sun and reverse the coordinates on Enola's back, then dry land is that way. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 157 and 158, which begin with Enola being proud of herself and end with a seagull landing on the airship. I mentioned at the tail end of last week's episode that we start this week with a bit of a sweet note. You've got Enola. She is standing between Helen and the Mariner, and she is positively beaming because not only did she just escape death, she looks at these adults on either side of her and she says, I was swimming. It's so normal. It's what a normal kid would do. Hey, did you see me? I was swimming. That's exactly kids. That's what they do. Anola doesn't really get to live a normal kid life. No kid does. <laughs> but especially Anola. So it's nice for her to have that moment. Yeah, and the Mariner has a very normal reaction where he looks down at her and he says, oh, I saw. It's very paternal. I have said the exact same thing before in my life where a kid <laughs> toddles up to me and says, oh, look, I, I did a thing. And I'm like, oh, I saw. Good job, uh -huh. bud. And that's all kids want is for you to see. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be critiqued. They don't need to be told how to be better. They just want to know that you saw. Mm -hmm. And considering her swimming ability is the one thing that the Mariner specifically taught her. It's the one skill that she has acquired over the course of this adventure. Of course, she would be proud of herself to be able to show that off. Yeah, and in such a way that actually saved her life. Mm -hmm. If she had flailed around like she did way back earlier in the movie... The Mariner may not have been able to get to her before she went under. And it would have been very difficult for him to grab onto her for sure. Yes. Like one of the benefits of her treading water on the surface is that she presented a stationary target for him to shoot for. <laughs> right. That was also true for the smokers, but they're blown up now, so they don't matter. <laughs> and the Mariner's response and the moments just after it I think he smiles, maybe for the first time in the movie. Yeah, I think you get a little bit of an actual smile. Yeah, it's pretty subtle, and he is quite exhausted. Understandably, yeah. Yeah, he's been doing a lot of work, but he seems happy. It's nice. It's a very human moment between our three principles here, and wouldn't you know that that moment is interrupted by Gregor. You mentioned last week that you're starting to get really annoyed with Gregor. Yeah, his shtick is starting to wear thin. And I don't think this explanation of his Eureka moment and how it translates to Dryland is that way, I don't think it's very clear. And it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. He had a Eureka moment, but it's the same moment that he had back at the atoll when he figured out that the polarities flipped. Uh-huh. Like, at that moment when he realized the polarity flipped, he should have had the realization that Enola's tattoo needs to be read upside down. 
and the coordinates flipped around or whatever. But he doesn't seem to have that realization until now. I don't think he needs to explain what a map is to people because he doesn't use it. <laughs> he spends, I don't know how many seconds explaining what a map is and then doesn't use it. Yeah. That was wasted time. He calls everybody's attention as he spreads this navigational chart across the middle of the gondola. And he says, look, this map, it bears a grid system with numbers the ancients used to determine geographic locations on the world, just like the numbers and symbols on Enola's back. It feels like he's explaining for the benefit of all assembled what a map is. Right. I'm sure right. he has seen maps before. Like, yeah, this can't be the first one he's seen, but, you know, maybe he just thinks that everybody else is dumber than he is and needs to be explained <laughs> what latitude and longitude lines mean, which, hey, if they haven't seen maps, sure, whatever. I'm open to the idea of him thinking out loud or troubleshooting out loud, brainstorming. I'm open to that, but he does seem to be explaining things that he knows already. And where did this map come from? I think I would have been more open to it if we had this explanatory scene when he first finds this map and goes oh my gosh you guys there's a grid system on this map and these numbers are really similar to the numbers on enola's back do you remember back in the atoll attack one of the things that he was carrying to put on the gondola was an armful of rolled up charts yeah i wonder if this map was in amongst those charts so he had this map the whole time he had this map the whole time the thing that he didn't have was the translation of the characters on the tattoo. That's true. So he needed two more pieces of information. One, the translation, which he got from the Mariner. And two, the idea that the polarities have flipped. Exactly. So things need to be reversed, which he also got from the Mariner. So this second aha moment is all of these disparate pieces of the puzzle that he has had in his possession, they're finally falling into place. Like, you can have pieces of a puzzle, but unless you've got an idea of what the grand picture is supposed to be, how easy is that puzzle going to be to fix? Yeah, so much harder. I try really hard not to be frustrated <laughs> with Gregor, <laughs> but he's so over the top so often. It was charming at first. Don't get me wrong. Now it's kind of like, okay, just get to the point, old man. I do have to wonder if we would feel that way at this point in the movie if we had watched the theatrical cut. Mm. Were there enough scenes removed for the theatrical cut that this still feels like a proper Eureka moment? Is that a downfall of putting scenes back in? That's hard to say. Yeah. I'd have to go back and uh, yeah. really observe it. And that seems like an odd thing to say now that we're on the 79th episode. <laughs> of going through this movie. So I guess I don't have a good answer for you. Right. But not as good of an answer as Gregor seems to have. He reaches for something that is in storage behind him. And as he turns around with a sextant in his hand, he explains that first the ancients would determine the angle of the sun using this, meaning the sextant, and that would tell them where they were and which direction they had to go. Now, I am not good at explaining how to use a sextant. I tried to read up on how to use one, and I felt really dumb because I couldn't figure it out, so I watched a cartoon video on ancient navigation. Mm -hmm. The video was really fun because they explained the ways that different civilizations navigated on the ocean. They said, oh, well, Vikings 
had a box of ravens and they would let one out. And if it flew in her direction, they knew land was that way. And they went on to say that the Polynesians were the first to really understand how to navigate using the stars and how if you're on one side of the world and you call your friend and you say, hey, what star are you under? And you can follow that star and just get updates along the way as the stars move. And that's one of the reasons why Polaris, the North Star, is such a good navigational tool because it doesn't spin in the night sky like all the other stars do. So like there are ways to do that that I have not researched, but a sextant specifically is all about finding the specific elevation of the sun versus what time of day it is. And that's going to be something you can compare against Greenwich Mean Time as far as that's concerned to figure out where on the globe you are as far as latitude is concerned, whereas longitude is more about what season you're in. It's all very complicated for me to try to explain, and yet here I am doing it anyway. (laughs) Basically, the long and the short of it is, is that Gregor is using this sextant. He makes one measurement and then just suddenly knows all of this information about exactly where they need to go. Right. Now, you mentioned the sextant is based on the position of the sun versus what time it is, Mm -hmm. which I understand vaguely how that would tell you where you are on the planet, but they don't have timekeeping devices. They don't know what time it is. Time doesn't mean anything to them anymore. Exactly. The whole idea of using a sextant to find your longitude is that you find the position of the sun against the horizon. You see what time it is where you are. You compare that to Greenwich Mean Time. So ideally, you'd probably need two clocks, one local, one compared to Greenwich. And then it tells you where on the latitude you are. And then it would give you a general direction to sail off to. He's doing a very simplified version of what the actual process is. The time spent in this scene of Gregor explaining things might have been better spent with him having an aha moment him using the sextant and then actually using the sextant the way it should be used, then doing some math on a piece of paper or something and then comparing that to the chart and him muttering about what he's doing as he's doing it in his mad scientist sort of way (laughs) so that it actually feels believable when he says, okay, it's that way. Yeah. Instead of just, oh, I'm going to point the sextant at the sun and then we need to go in the exact opposite direction. I do find it very convenient that the direction they need to go to find Everest or Dryland, you know, here I am <laughs> spoiling what Dryland is, as if we don't already know. But the direction they need to travel is already the direction that the airship is pointed in. Very convenient. Yeah, it was just so simplified. Honestly, at this point where we've had the big climactic event, I'm not sure I'm begrudging the movie a little simplification to get things moving faster. Okay, I don't begrudge the movie simplification to get things moving faster, but that's not exactly what they did. They spent the time with Gregor to explain what he was doing, except he didn't actually explain anything. Okay, that's a and very good point. And then in the end, he simplified it in the end, and they're like, yeah, go that way. <laughs> Listen, if you just set up Gregor in front of the camera and let him ramble for long enough, people are just going to shut off. <laughs> and so when he offers the simplified explanation, they're just going to say, okay, fine. Fine. You took long enough getting there. Let's just go. Right. So he points in the direction 
and they turn on their propellers and they just go. They just fly off. Yeah. I love everybody's reaction to the leaving. It feels very, we are setting off on our journey to a new chapter of our lives. There's something optimistic about this. The foe has been vanquished. They seem to know that they are in the end game of their movie where, okay, it's time for the happy ending. Let's go claim it. Mm-hmm. And it feels optimistic and relaxed in a way that we have not felt in a long time in yeah. this movie. After a few close-ups, everyone looks in the direction that Gregor is pointing, and that's when he hops in the little control seat that he has. But in the book, it's a little different. It takes a bit of the wind out of Gregor's sails. After they watch the Ds sink down below the waves, the book continues. And before long, stars bright overhead, leading the way, the balloon sailed, but not toward New Oasis. Everyone was asleep, Helen and Enola secure in each other's arms, Gregor flat on his back, snoring, the Enforcer curled up like a big baby, dreaming peacefully. (laughs) Everyone was asleep, but the Mariner, that is. He was steering. He had set a course, based upon a certain map. So in the book, it takes things away from Gregor. He's not the one in the book that figures out the direction to Dryland. It's the Mariner who does And apparently in the book, he just knows instinctively which way to go, which is even more frustrating because he spent the entire movie telling Helen, oh, I'll take you to dry land and lying to her about it. When according to this, because of him triangulating cities under the water, he doesn't need to consult the maps. He doesn't need to use the sextant. He just knows which way to go. Yeah, I don't really like that very much. I like the puzzle pieces that Gregor has to learn along the way. Mm -hmm. It answers why he has been working on this since Nola came around and hasn't really made any headway because he was missing vital pieces of information that he has since gotten. I like that. I just wish he was less obnoxious about it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Maybe just calmed down a little bit, spoke more succinctly, maybe. Yeah. Wasn't quite so Doc Brown about it all. Yeah, I think this is one of the rare times where I like the movie better than the book. Mm -hmm. Because if you take that away from Gregor, what's the point of him? Right. Beyond making the airship and saving them from the burned trimaran. Yeah. His point in this movie is to be the smartest person in the room. And that comes at a cost of him being a little scatterbrained, a little bumbling, But even with those features, he is still the smartest person in the room. Mm -hmm. And that's what he brings to the table. He invented the airship and a way to get out. He's the one who put together those puzzle pieces to figure out where Dryland is. And I think it's important that he gets to bring that to the table. What's interesting about this situation is that Helen obviously came to save Enola. Gregor came because he had the airship. And then you got the Enforcer. He's good for muscle. I hardly would have believed that Helen and Gregor would have been able to lift both Enola and the Mariner up into the airship. But here in the film, the Enforcer hasn't really done much beyond reminding Helen that she needs to tie off the rope, encouraging Gregor to go faster, which is exactly what Helen was doing, and then pulling on the rope. That's very true. He hasn't really made himself indispensable. It's weird to say that because he has. His muscle 
saved people. Exactly. But that's not enough. You'll remember that in the book, when the deacon was threatening the mariner with the flare gun that a Molotov was thrown down, it was the enforcer who threw that Molotov. And then as they're flying away, there are other smokers on the sinking ship that are firing up at the airship. And it's the enforcer again who takes another firebomb and throws it at the smokers that are attacking them. So he has more instances in the book where he is proving why he's there. I really like that because he is the enforcer. He was originally hired by the atoll to be their head of security. Mm -hmm. So that would be the perfect job for him on this airship is to be the primary defender. Exactly. The one who throws the bottle at the deacon, the one who defends them against other people who might be around. But in the movie, that's not really necessary. Yeah. I would have liked to see the enforcer in the movie throwing more bottles around at other smokers. I don't want to take away from Helen's contribution that she hit the deacon in the head with the bottle. I mm -hmm. like that she's the one who did it, but I would have liked to have seen the enforcer as they are flying in on the boat. He's standing behind Helen just hucking bottles left yeah, and right. Yeah, and he's got really, that crossbow. Yeah, really like, laying waste. Use it. And they could have very easily just had smokers on the deck of the Ds still mm -hmm. shooting up at the airship, up at the Mariner and Enola on the rope. Really easy. And it would have given him a purpose. I just had a random thought. We're once again complaining about a movie that we're watching, but complaining about it in a way that we want more of it. <laughs> Our main complaint isn't, oh, why did they put this in in the first place? It's why didn't they put more? We're watching a three hour cut. Right. Like, it's already pretty long. Like, it doesn't <laughs> necessarily need more. But, like, I love how oftentimes a lot of our complaints are, why isn't there more of this? Yeah. Like, give me another 30 seconds. <laughs> I want to see the Enforcer do something. Yeah. Give people their due. Instead, the airship flies away from the wreckage of the Ds. And for the next minute or so, it's nothing but the airship flying through clouds on its way slowly but surely to dry land. There's a rather extended shot of everyone sleeping on the airship, very much like how I described it in the book. Yeah. Everyone curled up. And Gregor has a water bottle cradled under his arm, and the Mariner reaches up, upends it, and finds that there are only a few drops left. And he does something interesting. He catches those drops in his hand and then brings his hand over and makes sure that that water falls into Enola's mouth. He gives her the very last of their water supply. And what I like is that as they pan back from Enola to the Mariner, you can see that Helen is awake. So she saw him doing that little selfless act for Enola's benefit. And Enola was asleep. She wouldn't even have noticed it otherwise. It was something that he didn't do because he knew someone was watching. He did it because he was concerned for her welfare. And I'm glad that Helen got to see that. I'm grateful as well that we got to see that, that they took a few moments to show us that. It really helps to add another marker on his character arc. Yeah, because the Mariner at the beginning of this movie would have saved that water, what little of it was left, for himself. Absolutely. This feels very similar to the tomato scene, mm -hmm. where even the few drops of tomato juice... 
he scooped up for himself. Very actively selfish. Yeah. And he isn't like that anymore. Not that he won't ever be like that again, but this individual has earned that place in his life to be selfless. Yeah. For. It's a nice little detail that they've thrown in here during what otherwise would have been a scene that just said, oh no, their supplies have run low. We are being indicated to that their supplies are running low. This feels kind of like an odd time to put them in some sort of peril again. It makes sense to me, because Helen Gregor and the Enforcer likely left New Oasis intending to do battle. They likely did not leave New Oasis intending to never come back. They probably have an overabundance of Molotovs <laughs> and not enough food. That's very true. They did not intend to go straight from the battle to dry land. And the book points out that it's several days before they reach their destination. In that case, I think this running low on supplies and they are in danger, I think it should have been taken another step. I think maybe it should have been more of a plot point that they have been floating through the air for days, weeks. This is becoming dangerous. Maybe they're starting to question that they are actually going in the right direction and maybe Gregor has to defend himself. All of that would take way too long. It is a not needed plot point. Yeah. But it seems like that's the way it would go. That's why they'd used so many fades. Once you have the shot of the airship flying off towards dryland, you get a fade to the airship flying through the cloud. It fades to looking down at the airship as it flies through the clouds some more. You fade to everyone sleeping. Like every time we've seen a fade, it's an indiscriminate amount of time later. Yeah. Which is why it's so hard to clock exactly how long this movie takes place over. <laughs> In fact, with about 20 seconds left in this clip, we cut to a close-up of the Mariner, and it is early morning, the sun is rising, and the Mariner is resting his head on his fist, and something wakes him up. And in the last five seconds of this clip, we see that there is a seagull sitting on the edge of the gondola. And I have read in the book a couple of times, people have referred to gulls. Mm -hmm. And the question has always come up, how do they know what a gull is if they can't find dry land? Which has always been a very legitimate question. Yeah. But here we finally see a seagull. Where we live, up in the northeast of the United States, we see our fair share of seagulls. I am not a particular fan of that species. <laughs> I am a fan of them as part of the whole seaside package. Okay, as an aesthetic... They're cool. As an actual creature, not so much. Right. Like, I like the layering of sounds of seagulls with ocean waves crashing. Mm -hmm. Those go very nicely together, and I enjoy the combination. What I do not enjoy is trying to eat on the beach and having gulls stalking you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine that our feelings on seagulls very closely mirror someone who lives in a big city and how they view pigeons. Yes. I looked up seagulls on Wikipedia and I pulled some sections so that we can get a little technical with these flying rats. Okay. So gulls, or colloquially seagulls, are seabirds of the family Laridae of the suborder Lare, 
Gulls are typically medium to large birds, usually gray or white, often with black markings on the head or wings. They typically have harsh wailing or squawking calls, stout, longish bills, and webbed feet. Most gulls are ground-nesting carnivores, which means they take live food or scavenge opportunistically. Live food often includes crustaceans, mollusks, fish, and small birds. Gulls have unhinging jaws, which allow them to consume large prey. They are typically coastal or an inland species, rarely venturing far out to sea. The large species takes up to four years to attain full adult plumage, but two years is typical for smaller gulls. Large, white-headed gulls are typically long-lived birds with a maximum age of 49 years recorded for the herring gull. Wow, that's a long time. Mm -hmm. Gulls nest in large, densely packed, noisy colonies. <laughs> they lay two or three speckled eggs in nests composed of vegetation. Gulls are resourceful, inquisitive, and intelligent. The larger species in particular demonstrating complex method of communication and a highly developed social structure. For example, many gull colonies display mobbing behavior, attacking and harassing predators and other <laughs> intruders. Certain species have exhibited tool use behavior, such as the herring gull, using pieces of bread as bait with which to catch goldfish, for example. Many species of gulls have learned to coexist successfully with humans and have thrived in human habitats. Others rely on kleptoparasitism to get their food. Gulls have been observed preying on live whales, landing on the whale as it surfaces to peck out pieces of flesh. Oh my goodness. So it's not just annoying that seagulls will steal your bag of chips, like your entire large family size bag of chips off of your beach towel, but they will also land on whales and peck at them for sustenance. Oh my. Seagulls are little jerks. Yeah, they kind of are. Like they I said, are. I enjoy the aesthetic that they bring to that coastal style of decoration and living and soundtrack. But if you got a crap ton of seagulls and they're hanging out in your parking lot and they're pooping all over your car and they're stealing food off your picnic table and all of that other nonsense, it's very annoying. Yes, it is. If I had a seagull land this close to me, I'd probably shoot away very quickly. But that's me. I'm not the mariner. <laughs> Unfortunately for us, we don't get to see how the Mariner reacts to the seagull this week, so we will have to wait on that. So come back next time. The seagull's arrival will reveal that the airship has indeed reached dry land. Gregor will bring the airship down where they'll find fresh water, and the Enforcer will lead them to a pair of stick-built huts. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 79. We'll see you next time.